0: You know, we spend our whole lives searching for meaning and purpose, a place to belong, and a way to have it all. We want our lives to count for something, to be fulfilling, to be happy. But what if our wisdom fails? What if the bridge we're on leads to nowhere? The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. What if the road I think leads to freedom only brings bondage? How can I know the truth? Where do I find it? What is the path to true happiness, to real wisdom, to God himself? Some of the st- stories that uh, Jesus told leave you scratching your head. I mean, some of them make perfect sense the first time we hear them, but some of those stories we go, really? And honestly, some stories, even after we've heard them over and over again, it leave us sometimes wondering, what was Jesus really saying? And I think one of those stories is one in Matthew chapter 20. I actually just read through it this week as I was reading in my personal devotional Bible study reading, and it's always struck me as just one of those remarkable stories that Jesus told. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he told a story about a man who owned a vineyard, and he needed workers to work in the vineyard. And so he went out to hire day laborers. If you've ever been to a big city or even an agricultural area, you'll know that that phenomenon continues even to this day. Sometimes men needing a job, usually men, will congregate in a certain area and wait for a bus to come. A man with a truck will arrive in the morning and just hire day laborers. Well, this was true even in Jesus' day. And so the vineyard, uh, the owner of the vineyard, uh, goes out and he hires some workers at, at first thing in the morning. He needs some workers. So he hires them, he takes them. I know he didn't have a bus, but I like to think he loaded them on a the bus, you know, and took them to the vineyard. And then about midway through the day, he realized he needed more workers. And so he showed up, the Bible says, at noon. And there's still some guys who haven't been hired yet. And so it's the 12 o'clock bus, right? It's the 12 o'clock crew. He gets those guys and he takes them to the vineyard and they go to work. Interestingly enough, about three in the afternoon, he decides he needs some more. And so at three in the afternoon, he goes and he hires another shift of workers. And then finally... At 5 o'clock in the afternoon, now quitting time in this story is 6 o'clock. It's 5 o'clock in the evening, and the owner of the vineyard goes by where the day laborers were, and there's still a few guys hanging around. He says, why did you guys not go to work somewhere? He said, well, we couldn't get a job. No one hired us. He says, come on. On the bus, right? I know he did. On the bus. So 5 o'clock, you know, it's the 5 o'clock bus. He takes them out to the vineyard, puts them in the vineyard. They work for one hour. The end of the day, they all line up to get paid. And the guys who got hired last are first in the line. Now, the guys who got hired first were promised their wage up front. It was a day's day's wage for a day's pay. They had agreed on it. So the guys now at 5 o'clock are first in line, and they come up. And the guy pays them a day's wage. The same thing he had promised the first crew. They're happy. They only worked one hour. Then comes the 3 o'clock crew. They get the same amount. Then the 12 o'clock crew. They get the same amount. By this time, the 8 o'clock crew, a little upset. But surely, after they have toiled in the sun all the live long day, they're going to be paid a little bit more. Nope. Nope. They get the same amount. And the Bible says they were a little irritated by it, just like some of you would be. They said, we worked all day long. We made the 8 o'clock bus. We we set our clocks ahead. We were the crowd that got here. If we had known it didn't matter, we'd have slept in another hour. We got here. We worked all day long, and the 5 o'clock crowd gets the same amount as us. And the guy who owns the vineyard said, did I not pay you what I promised? Yes. He said, then what's your concern? I'll do what I want to with my money. And Jesus said, and this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, I don't know about you. When I heard that story, I thought, I don't know if Jesus understands much about economics. And some of you are thinking, I don't know if Jesus knows how to run a business because that's no way to run a business. And yet, what was Jesus saying? What does it mean to us? What does it mean to us when we think about how to have a relationship with God. I think that story is explained a little bit in the book of Romans, chapter 4. And it's there I invite you to turn your attention with me this morning. In Romans, chapter 4, if the biographies of Jesus tell us the story of Jesus, in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul, who writes this book, is explaining what does it mean to trust in Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? He's like giving us the explanation of it. And in Romans 4, in the middle of this, of a long conversation he's having in the book of Romans, we see some important verses that help us understand what, 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 what does this story that Jesus told means and what does it mean to know for Sure that we're right with God because at the end of the day isn't that the most important thing to know that we're right with God in Romans 4 just to set it up before we read Paul is writing he's a Jewish man he's writing to a lot of people but he he understands that is, he's writing, a lot of his audience is going to be Jewish. And so he's writing to them, anticipating their questions. If he, you know, he would, if he was speaking to a bunch of evangelicals, he would kind of anticipate the question different. And here's what he knows they're going to be asking. Here's what he knows they're going to be asking. They're going to be saying, well, we know how to be right with God. We have to, we have to do what our fathers taught us to do. And so what he's going to do is he's going to go back and he's going to pull the ultimate example to every Jew, which is Abraham. Abraham is not only the father of the Jewish nation but the father of faith that is to show them how to have a relationship with God and it was Abraham by the way who was called a friend of God so if you really want to be a friend of God you might want to pay attention to Romans 4 verses 1 through 5 if you'll stand with me as we honor the word of God today and read this text in Romans 4 beginning in verse 1 What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Father, we need to know what it means to be right in your sight. At the end of the day, we want to know we are your children, that we have a relationship with you. That we have found the life you have made us for. So Father, show us from this passage what it means, what Abraham himself discovered, what it means to be just right in your sight is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Work. Matters. Everyone in this room understands the importance and the value of work. If not, you should. Work is how countries are built. Work is how businesses are built. Work is how civilizations are built. We understand the value of work, and in its most elementary level, we understand the value of a day's wage for a day's work. Work matters, and we measure it. Now, I know in education there's a lot of debate and controversy about testing and methods of testing, but here's the deal that every educator knows. At some point, you got to have a test. You just can't ask Johnny if he did his homework because Johnny lies, right? I mean, at some point, you have to give Johnny a test you got to see if he did the work. Work matters because we value work in education. In fact, every one of your kids is going to get tested, aren't they, multiple times. And going to the college that they may want or choose may ultimately fall down to how well they do on a particular test. We measure success and we value success. In athletics, we keep score, don't we? And oh, how we like to keep score. Why? Because we measure success. It matters. Work matters. And you don't win if you don't work. Every kid has heard every coach in the world say, the only place success comes before work is in the dictionary. You've got to work if you want to win. You can't build a business without work. If you run a business, if you're hiring people, who are you looking for? You're looking for the crowd that gets on the 8 o'clock bus, right? You want them to be there. If they're supposed to be there at 8 o'clock. You really want them there about 10 to late, don't you? You're hoping their mom and daddy raise them. If you're on time, you're already late. That's what you want. That's why so many people hire folks out of the military. Why? You men and women are in the military. You, you didn't show up when you felt like it. You showed up when you were told to be there and nobody was interested in excuses. You want people like that. And you want people to not only show up on time, but work, a full day's work, and you're happy to give them a full day's wage. Work builds businesses. Work builds winners. Work builds academics and uh, people who lead. Work is important, which is why? When we come to thinking about God, we are all hardwired to understand the principle of work. What must we do to earn God's favor? What must we do to be a friend of God? And every human-based religion is based on this principle of works. And it appeals to people because we're all hardwired for works. So you need to take these classes to work up the bridge. Or you need to jump through these hoops or follow these religious rituals. You need to obey the rules. You need to practice morals. And if you do, then plank by plank and brick by brick, You can build a bridge through your work, a bridge that you hope will be enough, and you hope it will. You hope one day that when you stand before God, if there is a God, you will have done enough, and you can look back on your life, and you will have done enough to compensate for the times you didn't do well. And you will have done enough plank by plank, bridge by bridge, or plank by plank, brick by brick, to build a bridge that leads somewhere. But here is the message of Paul in the book of Romans. And here is the underlying truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The bridge you're building is a bridge to nowhere. It won't take you where you want to go. So Paul says, let me tell you about how Abraham got there. Because he knew every Jew would sit up in their chair when that became the example He said, let me tell you about how Abraham became a friend of God and how you can too. Did you see what he said? Is your Bible open there? If Abraham, in verse 2, you know, he says in verse 1, let's see what Abraham, our forefather, has found. Let's just, what did he figure out? Because he evidently figured out this whole God deal, this relationship with God. So what did he find, verse 2? If he was justified by works. So stop there, let's make sure. I know many of you do, but the word justified there in verse 2, such a key word. He uses it over and over in the book of Romans, and it's so hard to understand the message if we're not crystal clear on what he means. When he says justified, it is a legal term, like just, a legal term. To be rendered, just. To be declared, just. To be found, just. It's not, you know, it's a legal term. It's like, hey, the, you know, somebody maybe has been accused and there's a trial and the evidence gets heard. The jury goes out and they deliberate the evidence. They come back and they render a verdict. Only in our case, the best you hope for, what you really hope for is to be declared not guilty. Not guilty. That's, that's not justified. Justified goes beyond that. Now, all you've got to do to avoid going to jail is to be not guilty. There are plenty of jurors, though, who will say afterwards, I think the guy may have been guilty. He really looks a little shady. I, I, you know, I, I. But they didn't bring me enough evidence to prove he was guilty. So the only verdict you have to render in our court system is not guilty. They just, he, but that's not justified. Justified is all the evidence is in. By the way, they know all the evidence. All the evidence is in. It's all considered. And at the end of the day... The person is innocent. The person is not just innocent, perfectly innocent. Just. When compared and contrasted with all the commands of a just and perfect God, this person stands before God just. Just as if they had done no wrong. They're just before God. So, here's the question. If Abraham was justified... By works, then he would have something to boast about. But then he goes to the Bible. What does the Bible say? What's the truth? Was Abraham just in God's sight because of what he did? No. Look at verse 3. The Scripture says, Abraham believed God. there it is he believed god and it that is his believing god and it was credited to him as righteousness he believed god and so god saw his faith and credited to him as righteousness that's how he became a friend of god first He believed God. If you want to know how to be just in God's sight, it is to believe in God. Now, that verse 3 is a quote, as I told you. It's a quote from the book of Genesis, chapter 15 and verse 6. So, it's a a, a quotation, and Paul's pulling it out. So, it's a story, this. And some of you know the story of Abraham, right? Some of you know that Abraham, uh, you know, his home, uh, his ancestral home was among pagans and they worshiped all kinds of false gods and idols and and he believed in God he believed in the one true living God and he felt like God was telling him to leave his home and move to what we call Canaan or Judea he moved to what would become the promised land and so he moves there and uh, and 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 God says I'm going to bless you I'm going to bless you and God says to him I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation which is a great promise like you're going to have kids And they're gonna have kids and you're gonna have lots and lots i'm gonna make a great nation out of you which is all fine except he has no kids and it is hard to have grandkids with no kids it's hard to become a great nation when you can't even get out of the starting block and he's getting old there's not many people who cash their social security check and go to the maternity store in the same day. <laughs> Nobody takes it. Here's my social. Can I just sign it over to buy some maternity? No, that's not how it works. Abraham's getting old. His wife's getting old. And God takes him outside and says, look up into the heavens. And he looks up into the heavens, and he sees stars, too many to number. And God says, do you see the stars of the heaven? I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. And that old man looks into the sky and he sees those stars. And the Bible says he believed God. And in that moment, God credited to him as righteousness. He wasn't perfectly righteous. That's not what the Bible says. Study the story of Abraham. He messes up two or three times. But he believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. The Bible's saying he wasn't saved by his works, what he did. If so, he could have boasted about it. He was made righteous in God's sight because simply this, he believed God. It was faith, not Works. It was his faith, trusting in God, not his works, what he did for God, that caused him to be declared righteous. Faith and works are contrasted here. Works is what a man, a person can do. Faith is trusting in what only God can do. Works are external and measurable. Faith is internal and not immediately measurable. Faith is subjective, where works are more objective. But it wasn't his works. It was faith, not works. Faith is not, John MacArthur wrote, and I agree entirely. Faith is not, as some claim, a type of work. Paul makes clear that saving faith is completely apart from any kind of human works. Paul is saying if If Abraham had done anything on his own to earn the favor of God, he could have boasted about it. This is what we spoke of a couple of weeks ago when we called it quid pro quo religion. Most religion is quid pro quo, which is Latin for something for something. Religious systems are based on something for something. I do something for God. He does something for me. And Paul is arguing that's not how this works. Abraham did not do something that rendered him just. He simply believed God, and God did something for him that he did not deserve. Therefore, he could not boast. He goes on, by the way, in chapter 4 to give more examples Sometimes I'm asked, how were people, Christians will ask me, how were people saved, that means rescued, that means forgiven, how were people saved before the time of Jesus? You ever get asked that question, Bible teachers? The answer is the same way people are saved after Jesus. They believed God. What do you think Abraham was believing as he stared up into the heavens? He was believing the gospel. That God said, I will do something for you you cannot do for yourself, and I will bless you and make you a great nation. And as he stared into the heavens, he believed what God said. And how are we made right with God? By listening to God and the message of God and the gospel of God and believing that God has come in Christ to bless us and to live in us. He looked forward and we look backwards, but the reality is we're all looking upward and trusting God, that's how he was made right with God. It was by believing in God. And then he goes on, he says the same thing is true of David. In verses six through eight, he talks about King David. And he says, David wrote these verses. And he quotes them in verses seven and eight. He's actually quoting there from Psalm, blessed is the one whose lawless acts are forgiven. Who's the blessed man? He doesn't say, blessed is the one who kept every single rule God ever gave. He said, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Well, who in the world can claim that? But David said, that's the person who's blessed, the one God has forgiven. He goes on to talk about how Abraham and the Jews looked all the things that abraham did as a righteous man as a religious man but paul is going to say before he ever did those religious things he believed god and god credited to him as righteousness we often use here's the deal we often use these old testament stories about gideon and abraham and david and noah and to teach our kids moral lessons because we want our kids to learn moral lessons talk about why in a moment. So we tell, so sometimes, and here's, here's I mean, it's a good-bad. I, I think we need to teach our kids all the great stories of the Bible. But there needs to be this, this underneath it all, a sense of, of, of how, how we're made right with God. Because a lot of times what happens is we, we teach the story of David and our kids, they learn courage. And we teach the story of Daniel and our kids learn purity. And we teach the story of Noah and we, our t- kids learn obedience. But here's the problem. All of those guys, if they, if they grow up and start reading those stories... Almost all those guys blew it somewhere, right? I mean, Gideon doubted that God would deliver him. Abraham laughs at God, and twice he lied about his his own wife. I mean, David fell into sexual sin. Noah, there's your hero. What happened to Noah after the flood? The Bible says he got drunk and was naked in a tent. Now, how would you like it if your kids come home from Sunday school, you pick them up today, and you say, Johnny, what'd you learn in Sunday school today? Oh, we learned about Noah getting drunk and naked in a tent. You're going to be calling the church tomorrow. What are you folks teaching down there? There's your hero, drunk, naked, and in a tent like a redneck on vacation. They, they, they all blew it somewhere. Even Abraham blew it somewhere. And so the message is, yes, while they exemplify great heroism and morality at times, they all fall short. None of them are perfect. So how was Abraham just in God's sight? Not by his perfection, but because he believed God. It was faith, not works. Which immediately leads to this question, and I must deal with it, because immediately when you begin to think about faith and not works, someone will ask, well, wait a second, Pastor, you said no one can run a business without works. No one can run a school without works. You can't build a country without works. And are you telling me that God makes us right with him by faith and not by works? If that's true, here's the question, if that's true, then we can live any way we want to live. Which, if you ask that question, I know you're on the right track because it's the exact question Paul anticipates and answers. In chapter 6, he anticipates. That's exactly what you're going to say. And so in chapter 6, in verse 1, he switches gears and he says, so what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? In other words, okay, well, I'll just do whatever I want then. What does he say in verse 2? Absolutely not. And here's what he explains. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Apparently, when Paul is talking about faith, it is the kind of faith, real faith, saving faith, that changes us, that transforms us, that causes us to be dead to an old way of life and alive to a new way of living. It's not faith. It's faith not works, but it's faith that works. It's faith that works. The contrast is not between doing something or doing nothing. The contrast is between trusting in the righteousness of Christ for my salvation or trusting in my own righteousness for salvation. The law of God is important. The moral transcendent law of God I've given you three reasons. Let me say them again. The law of God, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. It's important. You want to teach your kids the law. Why? Three reasons. Number one, it tells us what God is like. It reveals the character of God. We should not lie because God is truth. We should not kill because God gives us life. And on and on. It reveals the character of God. Number two, it gives us guidance for living. The reality is if you take God's moral law and use it as a guide in your life, it will help you and bless you. This is true whether you believe in God or not. Whether you believe in God or not, if you commit adultery, it's probably going to ruin the relationships in your life. I don't care whether you go to church or not. I don't care whether you believe in God or not. If you lie to people all the time, it's probably going to ruin your relationships. If you steal, it's probably going to mess your life up. The moral law of God guides us. It directs us. And the third importance of God's moral law is it reveals our need for grace. Because the law is like staring into a mirror, the moral law of God. And no matter how good we are or morally we may live, inevitably we fall short. And so it reveals to us that we need God's grace. In reality, faith in God is what truly produces the desire to live for God. Those of you who are trying to keep rules, those of you who are trying to live morally in order to earn God's favor, in order to deserve God's favor, can never be sure if you have ever really done enough. And you do those things out of a sense of obligation and out of a sense of fear. It becomes a burden in your life. The person who has placed their faith in Christ lives for Christ not out of obligation, but out of love. They want to obey Christ because they trust Christ. They want to follow Christ because they love Christ. We embrace the truth of God because we love him and trust him and want to follow him. Not because we have to, but because God has so gloriously changed us on the inside. It is what we want to do. There's a difference. The person who believes... Or hopes that they can earn their way into heaven can never be sure they have done enough. But the person who trusts in the goodness of God knows that their salvation is as secure as the character of God is. Abraham believed God. And that's what made him right with God. So what was done for him? He was declared righteous. When he believed God, the Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. In verse 5, it says, and in verse 4 and 5, he kind of shifts a little bit and reminds us of the story we started with. He says, if a guy works, then you expect to be paid. It's not credit. Nobody's doing you a favor. If you've worked a full day, you expect to be paid for that day. But he said, the one who does not work but believes on him who declares, listen to this, who puts his faith in the one who declares the ungodly to be righteous. His faith is credited for righteousness. Abraham was declared to be righteous. God declared him right, even though he wasn't always righteous. And God will do the same for you. One scholar said when someone believes in the gospel of Jesus God declares in advance of the verdict what that verdict is going to be It's called justification this state of being declared just before God. And here's the deal. It's not a process. It's not one. Whenever I talk to somebody who says, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. I'm trying to get to heaven. Well, if you're trying to get to heaven, you're going to try and try all of your life and never be sure if you've ever done enough. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is you look into the heavens. As Abraham gazed at the star, we gaze at the star, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we believe God. And thus, it is done. We are declared just and right in God's sight. It's not a process. It's a position. Another scholar said justification is a declaration of God. It reveals a new status. It is the verdict of the judge, not the works of the accused. Martin Luther said, this is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein, by a wonderful exchange, our... listen." Our sins are no longer ours, but Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is not Christ, but it is ours. It's an imperfect illustration, but it's the little boy going to the fair with his daddy. Well, it's Florida, so it's the Strawberry Festival, right? And they go, the dad pays the admission fee, they go to the Midway. The dad plucks down $10 to throw three balls through a ring, to throw the hoops on the duck. And the dad, being the dad, puts the ball in the hole, puts the ring on the duck, and gets the big prize. And the dad gives it to the little boy who didn't pay the fee, who didn't throw the ball, who didn't have the ability. But the father procures it, the father gives it, and the son receives it someone said faith is the empty hand that receives the grace of God and that is why we have peace with God if you ever talk to somebody and maybe you're just exploring this whole Jesus thing and they say oh I know I'm going to heaven it may come across as arrogant at first but it's not arrogance at all in fact it's the opposite of that Because what they're saying is not, I know I'm going to heaven because I've been good enough. What they're saying is, I know I'm going to heaven because it's not my works that I'm depending on. I'm trusting in the work of Jesus. Justification is when God takes what Jesus earned and gives it to you. And he took what you earned and he put it on his son who went to the cross. And when you trust in him, as I said earlier... You can be as secure in that as, you, as, as long as you can trust the character of God. That's why when Paul gets to chapter 5 in verse 1, look at what he says there. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, see, so he's explained all this in chapter 4 and he gets to 5. Therefore, since we have been, what's the word, declared righteous by faith. Look at the next verse. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have to spend my life worried or anxious, wondering. I have peace with God because I put my trust in Jesus. Which brings us back to the story we began with, doesn't it? The problem about the story, the 8 o'clock bus and the 12 o'clock bus and all that, is, is the reason you're offended in that story, the reason you don't like that is because you always, we always see ourselves as the 8 o'clock bunch, don't we? I mean, when you insert yourself in that case, it's like, okay, I would have gotten on the first bus. I would have put in the whole day. We always see ourselves as that crowd. At least you would have made the 12 o'clock bus. Come on. You know who you are in that story? You know who you really are? You're the guy waiting at 5 o'clock because nobody picked you up staring at the dirt and kicking the rocks while the sun starts sinking low in the sky and your belly growls with hunger. And you wonder how you're going to go back to your family and tell them you lost again. You didn't have the right connections. You couldn't get in the right place. At the last minute, the 5 o'clock bus comes. The father opens the door and he says, come on. I've got a place for you. And you get on the 5 o'clock bus. And when you get to the field, you get what Jesus earned. You get everything he earned. He was perfect. He was just. He was righteous. God says, if you'll trust me, if you'll believe me and trust in Christ, Everything he earned, I will give to you. You want the 5 o'clock bus. Because on the back of that bus, there's a bumper sticker with one word. And it's the word grace. At the end of the day, when the sun is sinking in the sky. It isn't what you did for God that's going to matter. It's what God did for you. For you. You missed the bus. And some of you here know you have. Because you no matter how good you've been and how hard you've tried, you know you've missed the bus a few times. But God is the Father who shows up at the end of the day and says, Jesus did for you what you could not do. And if you believe me, do you see this? Look at this. Look at this. If you believe believe me, then you will inherit the righteousness of Christ. You'll be declared righteous. You can work, work, work. It's a bridge to nowhere. But if you will trust in the grace of God given you in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will transform you. It will change you. And it will make you a friend of God. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed. As we're praying this morning, you may be here today and you have never put your trust in Jesus. Not like that, not like what we spoke of. And even today, you can pray and do that. You might say a prayer in your heart that just puts your faith in Jesus. If you believe that he died for you, took your sins on the cross, and was buried and rose again from the dead. Today, your prayer might be something like this. Dear God, I believe. I believe. I believe you died in my place. And as best I know how, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And if you would give me the gift of your righteousness, Lord, by faith, I want to receive it today. Please forgive me and please come to live within my heart. When this service is over, we're going to sing a final song of worship, and I pray that you'll sing it as a song. We'll we'll sing it as we respond to God. He's spoken to us. Should we not speak back to him? but when that song is over and the crowd begins to leave in a few moments our pastors will be here at the front if today you want to talk to somebody about that decision you made what it means to trust christ and follow him our pastors will be here at the end of the service to pray with you and to trust help you know what it means to trust in the word god father as we prepare to worship lord we know this we need you We need you in life. We need you in death. We need you. Our works are not enough. Our religion is not enough. Our morals, important though they are, are not enough. If Abraham is right and we believe he is, then we only find your righteousness by believing, by trusting in Jesus Christ who died in our place. Father, some of us, Lord, we need that 5 o'clock bus to come. We need to know there's a place at your table and your house for us. And by grace, we know it has come. And the door is open. Help us to step in, to receive it, to trust you, and receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ as our own. It's our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.